0: Alright, good morning church family. If you would stand to your feet as I read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 to the end of the chapter as we continue through our series in the Gospel of Matthew called the King. Matthew chapter 3 verses 13 through 17 reads, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill, for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, consented. Now when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words of sacred Scripture. We know that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for instruction that the man of God, that the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Father, we want to submit to your word this morning. Lord, even as we reflect on the glory of God who took on flesh and bone to die in our place, we thank you that the God for whom all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing actually became one of us. We thank you for that. And we thank you that we get to focus on the kickoff event in His public ministry this morning. And Lord, I ask that you would show us the glory of the great exchange. That we get to trade our sin for his righteousness. And I pray for anyone here who's never (laughs) made that trade. That today that would happen, Lord. So we want to worship you, Lord. We want our hearts to be ravished by Calvary's love. We don't just want our minds illuminate. We want our our heart, Lord, connected to you in a deeper way. So, Father, I pray for the power and the presence of Holy Spirit to make much of Jesus for your glory and for our good. We ask in his name. Amen. All right, you can grab a seat. Anybody here ever watch a presidential inauguration before pretty big events right They happen anywhere from 73 to 79 days after the election and on inauguration day the president elect officially and formally and finally steps into the presidential office it's a big deal it starts with the procession to the Capitol in the morning then there's the formal swearing in and then there's the inaugural address or speech before hundreds of thousands, if not a million-plus people splashed across the mall in D.C. Then, then the, the president makes his way to a Senate chamber where he signs some documents as his first uh, official presidential action. There is the, the inaugural luncheon. There's the passing review They stand on the steps and representatives from all the military branches parade by. And then, of course, there's the inaugural balls, many of them. It is a big deal, presidential inauguration. Well, as Pastor Charles mentioned last week, we're entering a new section through our series, the Gospel of Matthew called The King. The section would be chapters 3 and 4. And what it's about basically is the king's inauguration. The king's inauguration. Now, to be sure, Jesus wasn't made king. He's always been king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the eternal second person of the triune Godhead. The magi had it right when they brought him gifts fitting for a king. But in this section, chapters 3 and 4, Jesus steps out of 30 years of obscurity into his public ministry and role as king. And he does so not at a party or a parade or a speech or a luncheon or a procession. He does so through, all through of all things, a baptism. A baptism is how the king steps into his public ministry. It is the king's inauguration. Now, to be clear and to be technical, the baptism we just read about that I'm going to preach about is not It's not technically Christian baptism. A precursor to it, if you will, it was a baptism of repentance, a purification ritual that John the Baptist, as we saw last week, was calling people to. A ritual in which people would say, hey, I'm putting off my old ways. I'm turning from my stuff and my sin, and I'm going to follow God now. It was that baptism that Jesus kicks off his public ministry that will lead him, as we know, ultimately to the cross. And so to cut to the chase, what I want to preach to you about this morning is the king's baptism. Two things very clearly jump out of the text. You'll see this. Number one, why Jesus came. We need to be reminded of that, believers. And I would assume that in a room with people here this size, that there are people who who maybe know about Jesus. You've heard about Jesus your whole life, but you don't really understand Why it is he came, this text will tell you. And then second of all, we're gonna be reminded of who Jesus is. And then we'll pull up chocks, and I'm gonna make three or four applications that I really do think that if we take them to the heart and apply some elbow grease to them, have the the capacity to radically adjust the trajectory, not just of 2023, but of your life. I know that it's it's a big promise, but I believe these applications are so rooted in Christ, they have the capacity to do that. So let's dive in, starting at verse 13, looking at, first of all, why Jesus came. Let me read these verses again, verses 13 and 14. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? So when Jesus comes to be baptized by John the Baptist, what is John the Baptist's reaction? No way, man. No way. You got this backwards. I, you don't, I don't need to baptize you, Jesus. Jesus, you need to baptize me. He's very strong in this. So why? Why does John the Baptist not want Jesus, not, not want to baptize Jesus? Is he, is he simply being polite, do you think? What do you think? Simply being humble? Simply being deferential? Why in the world does John the Baptist have such an issue with baptizing Jesus when Jesus says, hey, baptize me? What's the the problem? That's where we're going. But even more than that, look at verses 5 and 6. Pastor Charles hit this last week. This was a baptism for what kind of people? Well, you'll see. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. This is now referring to John the Baptist. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. And what were they doing? Confessing their righteousness? Confessing their sins. Who was this baptism for? Sinners. Now, I don't think that John knows everything about Jesus right now. In fact, he'll have some doubts later on. But John knows that there's something different about Jesus and when we look at the full counsel of God's word, this is what we learn about Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:21 that Jesus knew no sin. Peter will later write in 1 Peter 2:22 he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Then John batting third will write in 1 John chapter 3 verse 5 that in him is no sin. He knew no sin, he committed no sin, in him is no sin. And then the writer of Hebrews will even add to that in chapter 4 when he writes that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In fact, he adds to that in chapter 7 where it says, for indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. And this is what he ticks off. Holy, innocent, <laughs> unstained, blameless, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Here's the point. It's not just that Jesus lived a really good life. He did. It's not just that Jesus set a great example. He did. It's not just that Jesus lived the best life anyone could ever live. He did. That's not the point, though. The point is Jesus lived a, what kind of life? Perfect life. A sinless life. And this really is part of the gospel that sometimes I think we overlook. In our own gospel presentation, we have six components, right? Component one, we say this. God created us in his own image. Component two, he became one of us. And then the third part is what? He lived the life we could not live. He lived the life we did not live. Jesus lived a perfect life. So now let's start to feel the tension of John. Remember, Jesus came to John and he asked John to baptize him. John says, no way. And the reason he says no way is because Jesus is different. We know from the full counsel of God's word, absolutely sinless. So then the question should be is this. Why was Jesus baptized? Huh? Like you should be asking that question. If this is a baptism for sinners, and Jesus is sinless, then why in the world is Jesus saying, hey, I need you to baptize me? Anybody want to know the answer? Because Jesus is going to tell you right now. Look at verse 16. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill, key words, all righteousness to fulfill all righteousness. Now, let me break this down. As Jesus kicks off his public ministry, that's what's happening here, right? This is inauguration. As Jesus kicks off his public ministry, this this is so rich, so sweet, so awesome, so powerful, so cool. As Jesus kicks off his public ministry, he is identifying as one of us, fallen sinners, though he's sinless. He's identifying as one of us so that in three years he will die for us in our place as our substitute. Now here's here's just a great quote by a a guy named Sean O'Donnell. He writes, water was a symbol of the cleansing of our sins, that we are made clean in the sight of God. You find that imagery all through the Old and New Testament. However, when Jesus went down into the water of the Jordan, the opposite happened. He began to take on our sin. He began to take on our scum. He began to take on our dirt. We don't think about it like this. We think, oh, on the cross, that's where Jesus took our sin. But you know when he kicks off his public ministry, in a sense, he's beginning to take our sin upon him by identifying as one of us. Do you see that? It's beautiful. And this points us to something that we call the great exchange. you say that with me? The great exchange. Anybody know what that is? The great exchange? It's a great exchange. So let me tell you about the great exchange. It's not just that Jesus died in our place. It's also that Jesus lived a righteous life. Life in our place. Let me say that again. It's not just that he died in our place. He did. It's also that he lived a righteous life in our place. We heard an awesome Sunday school lesson this morning talking about hamartiology, The doctrine of sin. We are unrighteous. Not Jesus. He lived a righteous life in our place. And that means because of his perfect life. And because of his sacrificial death that when you turn over your life over to Jesus, when you come to him in repentant faith, it's not just that something is taken off your ledger, your life of sin, he replaces it with something else, his life of righteousness. This is the doctrine of double imputation. This is the doctrine of justification. This is the great exchange. This is the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him Jesus who knew no sin, Bam, to be sin for us, that in turn we might become the righteousness of God in him. Prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 53 and 11, where he says, out of the anguish, this is the father now talking, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see him, that is his son Jesus, and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, here it is, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. This is a song we're about to sing. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So very simply and yet very deeply at the same time, Jesus came why? If someone were to ask you why did Jesus come, what do these verses tell us? They point to his work on the cross, do they not? That he came to redeem us from our sin, but not just to redeem us from our sin, to give us his very own righteousness. Sometimes people say, how good do you have to be to be right with God? Or how good do you have, right to, be, good do you have to be to get to heaven? What's the answer? Baby, you've got to be perfect. And the only one who died a sacrificial death for your imperfection, your sin, and who lived a perfect life in your place is Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you as we close out this first point. Look at these words right here. John, it says, consented. Do you see that? Then he consented. I don't, this this seems weird. I we should be doing this the other way around, this baptism thing, but okay. He consented. Have you consented? Have you come to see that all your righteousness is as a filthy rag, but that Jesus Christ can give you his righteousness? having died in your place and lived a righteous life in your place. That is what brings us together as a church, right? That's what unites us. What unites us is not anything else. It's not even where we live. It's not even what we look like or what we do for a living, where we work, our ethnicity, nothing. What brings us together is Christ and him crucified and him risen in our place. Do you know this, Jesus? Have you given your life to him? Have you trusted in him? You might say, well, who exactly is this Jesus? Okay, second point. Verses 15, verses 16 and 17, we're going to see now who Jesus is. And i got to tell you, books literally have been written on these two verses. Sermon series have been preached on these two verses. And I'm going to cover it in about four minutes, give or take 15. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. So I get the application. So let's just just walk these verses, take them at, at, at face value. It says in verse 16 that when Jesus was baptized, remember John consents and he baptizes him, immediately he went up from the water. So see Jesus right now coming up out of the water in the Jordan, water just falling off of him. Then what happens? What happens? And behold, and by the way, that's one of those tension-gathering words you see in Scripture. It's like, Attend. listen to this. This is really important. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. Now, I honestly, I don't know all that that means, okay? I wasn't there to see all that. I just read the account right here. But I do know this. All through Scripture, heaven is represented as the immediate dwelling place of God. Now, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time anyway, right? But he is in heaven in, like, his immediate presence, his presence to bless. In fact, sometimes the word kingdom of God is used interchangeably with the expression kingdom of heaven. I think it's a way of saying, hey, this one that's being baptized as the heavens open up over him, this one who's being baptized, he's not only from heaven, Heaven, he is the God of heaven. Who, by the way, is opening up the heaven of God to all who will consent. So the heavens were opened. Look at this next expression. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. I think there's a couple of things going on there. First of all, there is an anointing of sorts. We see even in the Old Testament, Kings would be anointed, right, recognized as king before a nation. We hear the the third person of the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, sent by the first person, sent by the Father, is anointing King Jesus as he steps into his public ministry. So there's an anointing going on. He is the king. He's not just God. He's king. But I think there's also an empowering that's going on as well. You realize that in the mystery of the incarnation, as Jesus moved on earth, he did so in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. We'll see this starting next week with the temptation of Jesus, that Jesus all through his earthly ministry was led and empowered by the same Spirit. We'll come back to this, that resides in each and every believer here, the Holy Spirit. So you have that. And then you have this final expression. And behold... A voice from heaven. Now, I I wish I had a James Earl Jones voice, this distinguished baritone voice, right? Behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. In the Greek, it reads, this is my son, the beloved. Very strong. So there's no room for doubting who Jesus is. The Father doesn't say from heaven, this is a beloved son. He says, this is my son, the beloved, or shortened, my beloved son. He is God's son. He's God. He's king. He's God's son. And there's no room for doubting how the Father feels about him too, right? What does he say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well-pleased. Now this, this coronation ceremony is a remarkable scene, isn't it? Here you have all three members of the Godhead front and center. You have the Father speaking from heaven. You have the Son, the second person, down in the water. And you have the Spirit of God coming down and resting on Him like a dove. Here we see, here we see. So we're answering the second question. Who is Jesus? He is, He is the Son of God the eternal second person of the triune Godhead, the coronated king kicking off his public ministry. So what we have right here in this short scene is the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Now, I want to move on to four applications that I believe truly have the power to make 2023 a year unlike any other you've ever experienced. this seems like just kind preacher talk, doesn't it? Like, yeah, everyone says that. You know, I read something on social media this morning where a guy said, I'm declaring this your breakthrough year. You ever notice people say that every year? I'm declaring this your breakthrough year. Oh, that stuff makes me angry. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I am talking about some Christ-centered applications, right, that I think can give you breakthroughs not because of some prophetic utterance, but because of the power of the Son of God working in your life by His Holy Spirit. So here they are. Number one, did you know that God calls you to delight in Christ? I would even say God commands you to delight in Christ. If the Father is well pleased in his son, then surely we ought to be right, well pleased in his son. And, and, and I would, I think it's one thing to be thankful for what Christ has done. That, that's good, right? Is that a bad thing? Oh, I shouldn't be thankful for what he's done. No, but you can be thankful for what someone in your life has done, but not actually actively delight in them, right? You be thankful that something, somebody gave you something, but you're not actually delighting them in the moment. So what I'm trying to say, it's one thing to be thankful for what Christ has done, and we ought to be. It's another thing to actively delight in Him, in the moment, in the moment, just to delight in Him, to take joy in Him, to say, in you I have great delight. And you know there are so many verses of Scripture, both Old and New Testament, that point in this direction, Remember, Peter writes, whom having seen, whom having not seen you rejoice with, with joy unspeakable. Remember that? How about this, though? Psalm 40, verse 3, somewhere in that ballpark, it is this. The psalmist wrote, then I will go to the altar of God. What does he say? To God my exceeding joy. To God my exceeding joy. Not my somewhat joy, not my joy. My exceeding joy. God my exceeding joy. What if this year, with all the joys that you and I will experience, and quite possibly a few heartbreaks along the way as well, you sought for Jesus Christ to be your exceeding joy? Because I don't think he's the exceeding joy of a lot of people. I know that he's not my exceeding joy a lot. I just get on all the I can even do all the right things. I can read the Bible. I can go to church. I can pray. But is he my exceeding joy? That's just the thing that God has been stirring in my heart. I've been going through Psalm 16. It's it's, it's good for me just to marinate in Scripture that I'm not going to preach on, not not thinking, oh, I can say this or I can preach that. No, just for me. Psalm 16. In your presence is the fullness of joy. You make known to me the pathway of life. And so I picked up. An old book called The Glory of Christ by John Owen. This is an updated, abridged version, just so you know. It makes me want to go to the original version. He wrote in the 1600s, kind of older English, a little bit harder to follow. But the premise of this is that we need to enjoy the glory of Christ. And I just want to read a few quotes. I'm only partway through this book, reading through it, very slowly rereading chapters. But he begins chapter 1, actually the first page of the preface with this. Shared this, uh, actually a family last night shared this, I think with the prayer meeting this morning. If our future happiness means being where Christ is and seeing his glory. Do you think that's our future happiness is about that? Seeing his glory. If that's what our future happiness is about. There is no better preparation for it than to fill our thoughts with that glory right now. And that's that basically the whole book is just an expansion of that. He writes, page two, how sinful and foolish we are if we think too much of other things and not enough of this. I'm sinful, I'm foolish, because I fall under that indictment. Then he says, chapter one, Well, let me just move on. There's so many quotes. Let me say this. He said, glory would dawn in our souls more often if we were diligent in our duty of meditating on the glory of Christ. Is that even a foreign language to you? Do you understand what it is to experience the the glory of God in your soul? The life of God in your soul? You can't even quite define it, can you? But it's just tasting, to use biblical terminology, and seeing that the Lord is good. Now, Owen cuts it straight, he's real. He says, the truth is that the best of us is unwilling to spend time in serious thought or meditation on this subject. Thoughts of the glory of Christ are too high and too hard for us. We cannot delight in them for very long without becoming weary and turning away from them. Seriously, when's the last time you really meditated on the glory of God in Christ? He said, unless you see this, as a great privilege, you will never seek to and enjoy it. So maybe the first thing is, I have a great privilege of beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ right now. Lazy souls, he later writes, never a- attain any experience of this glory. But to seek it by the ways God commands is pleasant. And I'll just give you one last quote, lest I just give you a book report. Here it is. is a great question right here. What sort of faith and love do people have who find time to think about many other things but make no time for meditating on the glory of Christ? He says, what sort of faith and love do such people have? That's a a challenging question, isn't it? So what's the formula? (laughs) There is no formula. There is no formula. Yes, you want to get in the Word. Yes, you want to pray. It starts there. Yes, you want to gather with the saints. Maybe, maybe going back to that psalm I just quoted from, I have to go and I have to believe. Then I will go to the altar of God, my exceeding joy. To the altar of God, my exceeding joy. And maybe you would say, 2022, that was not my experience. 2021 was not my, that, not my experience. This year, I want to taste the glory of God on the palate of my soul. God commands us to delight in Christ just like he does, the Father. If we experience that, I think that would be revolutionary. Number two, God delights in you just like he delights in Christ. God delights in you just like he delights in Christ. Now, except for a few narcissists here, and some others who are out of touch with reality, when we take an honest look into the mirror and into our own hearts, we wonder how could God ever really delight in me, right? Maybe he loves me, I mean he did give his son, but delight in me? I have a hard enough time believing the love part. Now the delight? I mean, you were there when I I lost my temper. You were there when I said that ugly word. You were there when I was a hypocrite, when I was selfish, when I was lustful, when I was mean-spirited, when I was judgmental, on and on. You were there. And yet you're telling me, Pastor, he delights in me like he delights in Christ. Yes, because he looks at you through Christ. That's why he does. Because of the great exchange, right? Right? He looks at you through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so theologians have kind of taken that quote from verse 16 and verse 17 and and turned it this way. This is a beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You believe he says that over you? This is a beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Now does that mean God can't see our sin? No. Does that mean we can't quench the spirit? No. Does that mean God doesn't bring discipline into our lives? No. But actually, all of that is because of who he sees us through, right? And wants us to live up to. And so when he brings conviction in our lives, it's not to condemn us, but to lead us back to the cross, right? For deeper repentance and greater transformation. We are, we need to look at ourselves this way, according to Ephesians 1.6, accepted in the beloved you know, this is Bible, this is Romans 6 stuff, that when Jesus was crucified, he saw you as crucified there. We've been crucified with Christ, Galatians as well. But even before that, when Jesus lived a perfect life, if you're in Christ, he sees you as having lived a perfect life, life that you fulfilled every jot and tittle because that's what Jesus did. And when Jesus was placed in that grave, you were seen as being placed in that grave, buried with him, right? It says in Romans 6. And that when Jesus Christ stepped out of the grave, you were seen in Christ as having having risen from the dead. And that when Jesus Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, you are seen as there. Does it not say in Ephesians 2 that we right now are seated with Christ in the heavenlies? This is the precious doctrine of our union with Christ. Spurgeon preached many years ago at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. I've seen a picture of it, like three decks of people, this big oval auditorium. He preached from this text, and this is what he said. It's a longer quote, but it's, it's a good quote. He said, oh, he's talking about Christians, that these beloved ones would know, would but know, that God never did accept them because of their performance in the first place. He accepted them in who? Who? In Christ, and he never can reject them since he can never reject Christ. He says, I would see, I would that they would see that their ups make them no higher before God and their downs make them no lower before God. That all their highs do not exalt them and all their low despondencies do not really bring them down in their father's sight but that they stand accepted in the one who never alters, in one who was always beloved of the Father, always perfect, always complete, always without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Blessed faith, he says, that walks above experience. Joyous trust that in the darkest nights still sings of heaven's unclouded noon in the midst of blackness and vileness, consciously felt, still boast of pardon bought with blood, of righteousness complete and without flaw. God delights in you like he does in Christ, as you're in Christ. Now, three and four will be a lot faster, and then we're gonna sing, all right? Number three, the same spirit that empowered Christ now empowers you. It's pretty weighty, isn't it? As the spirit rested on Jesus at his public inauguration, the baptism, the spirit now resides in every believer at conversion. Resides in you, you're sealed with him. Now, people in certain movements have hijacked this truth to say, well, then you should be able to raise the dead at whim and do whatever you want. No, the thrust of being indwelt and empowered by the Spirit is crucifying, that is, putting to death the sin that he paid for and killed himself on the cross. Of walking out positionally what he has achieved for us practically. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, Romans 8 and 2. So that means not God not only gives us direction, right? The Spirit of God gave us the Word of God. God also gives you power, batteries included. Sometimes we don't feel the strength of those batteries, right? We just don't. Last week, our family went around the table, and we all shared with each other One or two things we would really like to see God do in our lives individually in 2023. I don't know if you went through an exercise like that. Maybe you shared it with others. Maybe you've just been thinking, hey, this is what I would like to see God do in 2023. What we all need to remember is, yes, we need to exert elbow grease, right? The Bible talks about effort, right, and self-discipline. It is God who works in us, Philippians 2 and 12 and 13, to both will and to do of his good pleasure. But what we need to remember as we exert self-discipline and effort is that God, by His Spirit, supplies the power. So we're, we're always cho- we always have a, a, a choice. We're at a crossroads. I can go with how I feel. i got to give in. Or I can go with the promised power that we'll have by believing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say, I don't, I don't feel the power of the Holy Spirit. What if you stopped going by feeling and just went by faith? I think that's how we're supposed to walk. You remember when the priests crossed the river Jordan? God, They said, you can walk right across this river. So what happened? Did they have a little party and stand back and wait for the, the Jordan to, to part and then they walked? Did it, did it part when they started to walk that direction? That river did not part until they actually, by faith, picked up their foot and then put it back down. An aisle way was made. And so it is with experiencing the power of God, I believe, in everyday life as we battle indwelling sin. The same spirit that empowered Christ empowers you. Fourth and finally, I think this passage calls us to publicly embrace Christ by embracing his bride. I'll show you how we get there. It is an application, but I think we can get there. Who's his bride? Who's the bride of Christ? That's the, that's the local church. That, that's the one whom he gave his life for. In the third century, Christianity began to spread like wildfire through the Roman Empire. You, it started off with um, lower economic uh, level people, the lower classes, but, but pretty soon middle class and upper class people were getting touched by the gospel. That's, the gospel just touches everybody. Learn it, men and women, were starting to come to faith in Christ. Now, one such man was a man, man named Marius Victorinus. Marius, and I'll probably say it different, all six times I say his name, but just bear with me, Victorinus. He was a professor of rhetoric and logic, really well known in the day, uh, a big time guy. They even made a statue of him while he was living in the Roman Senate so people could see him. He was a worshiper of all the Roman gods and goddesses across the pantheon of Greek and Roman mythology. That that was his thing. He starts studying Christianity, Victorinus does, and one day he says to his friend, Siplicanius, I am now a Christian. Remember, he was studying out the gospel. Well, Siplicanius said, I will not believe it unless I see you up in the church. To which, just like people today, Victorianists said, come on! Is it the walls that really make me a Christian? And that debate continued for months. Simplicanius knew that the reason Victorianists would not gather was fear of the public fallout. What would people say of this learned professor now confessing Jesus of Nazareth as Lord and God and Savior? Well, through reading scripture on his own, Victorianus came to see that it was his fear of gathering before, of what others would say that kept him from truly embracing and confessing Christ. It was a failure of faith. So, convicted by the Holy Spirit, he decides to get catechized, which was a big thing they did in that day. We're doing it, as you heard Pastor Nick uh, announce, we're catechizing our kids. The truth about Scripture, right? He decided to get catechized. He decided to get baptized. And he decided he would publicly identify with the church, whatever the cost. He ended up losing his chair. But keeping his faith. A real faith. Well, what about you? Maybe it's not fear that keeps you from gathering. Maybe it's busyness. Maybe it's a misplaced priority. Other things that keep you from regularly gathering with the church, starting as it did with Victorinus, baptism. Maybe you need to be baptized to confess Christ publicly. Jesus was, started his, his public ministry quite publicly through baptism. It's the way we identify with the local church. Or maybe you actually have been baptized, but truth be told, you did a pretty shoddy job in 2022 of walking out your baptismal vows. You know what? There's grace. There's forgiveness. So you confess that, you put that under the blood, and you say, I want to walk out my baptismal vows, and I want to identify with the body of Christ in, in all of her cadences. Listen, if Jesus Christ, the head of the church, was willing to step out, then so should we. May our lives publicly say, Jesus Christ is king. The king's baptism tells us why he came and who he is and gives us some great application. So don't forget, don't forget in music team if you would come. God God commands you to delight in Christ. He knows it's for the good of your soul. Maybe you really haven't delighted in Christ. I want I want I want to ask you as we sing a few songs to give yourself to that song in a way that you maybe haven't in a long time. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, you go all crazy or anything like that. It means you're focusing on the king of kings as you sing them. And I want to I encourage you that God sees you in Christ. He delights in you. You say, well, man, I, I really shank it, okay? I want to remind you that the same spirit that rested on Jesus now resides in you. And that you're to come together with the family of God. There we we get our batteries really charged, right, to walk out our new identities that we can publicly proclaim, publicly proclaim, proclaim that Jesus Christ is king. Jesus, you are king. As king, we ask that you would have your way as we worship you now by song. In Jesus' name, in your precious name.